0: Northern Europe, also known as the Cradle of Offshore Wind, is one of the most attractive areas because of its shallow waters, wind speeds, local competencies, and access to established supply chains. It's a critical piece of real estate and it's the centre of Startcraft's new strategic focus on offshore wind. David Flood, Senior Vice President of Offshore Wind at Startcraft, explains why the Norwegian hydropower giant has returned to offshore wind and is now working to position itself as an industrial developer and operator in the sector. With the evolution of hybrid projects, the potential development of offshore supergrids Coupled with the hydrogen agenda, flood makes a good case for offshore wind as one of the most vibrant and promising renewable energy sectors of our time. I'm Pamela Larg, and you're listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us. Let's dive straight in to talking about offshore wind. It really is an exciting sector to be working in. In your opinion, what are the top three reasons why we should be focusing on offshore wind? What makes it exciting for you?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, I've worked now in offshore wind, I think since 2006. So it's really been a part of my whole career working in the renewable energy space. I think for me personally, probably the three things I would pick out. Firstly, it has the ability to make a difference. And I think we all enjoy our jobs more, enjoy our work more if we believe we're working on something that's trying to make a difference for society. And I think, you know, when you talk about the climate change issue and net zero and all the targets that countries have and the urgency around that, offshore wind has that opportunity to really make a difference. And I think that gets you through the difficult days, you know, the bumpy days and the challenging days that we all have. Secondly, for me personally, offshore wind projects are just very complex they're complicated they have lots of facets there, are many different dynamics and issues that you have to balance and manage about and I just find that personally very interesting and stimulating to work on something so complex and then I think thirdly, for me, it has to be the people. I think the people that work in the offshore wind industry are very passionate about what they do they really care they're really working to as I said make a difference and feels even though obviously at times you're competing with them it still feels like a, a sort of a large family of people all, all pushing to improve the industry and really contribute
0: you are in the position as as svp of offshore wind so you started your role in november can you tell us w- what is your remit you're obviously focusing on on developing uh offshore wind presence can you tell us more about that
1: Yes, so Statcraft is Europe's largest generator of renewable energy and renewable energy really is the be-all and end-all of what we do and that comes from our heritage of hydropower from Norway and Sweden which we've been doing for over 125 years. In terms of offshore wind, we have been in offshore wind previously and offshore wind was one of our two core strategic growth areas during the previous decade but we made the decision to exit the space back in 2017. But what tends to happen with all European utilities is that you can't really stay away from offshore wind, particularly if you do want to be Europe's largest renewables generator. So we found ourselves sort of sliding back into it anyway. So the company made the decision at the start of last year that we were going to fully recommit to re-entering offshore wind. And really, over the past 12 months, we've been putting the different building blocks in place that we needed for that, including putting the organisation in place. So now it's very exciting to be heading up that unit that will drive our strategic re-entry into offshore wind. And we're very much focused on Northern Europe at the moment and building our capabilities as an industrial developer and an industrial operator of offshore wind going forward.
0: Before we talk more about Northern Europe, if I can focus in on uh, your collaboration with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, specifically uh, off the coast of Ireland, can you tell us a little bit more about the projects that you're focusing on there? What makes this area a key strategic focus for Startcraft and, and how are you working with, with CIP to develop this area?
1: Yes, yeah, so Ireland's one of Statcraft's core markets and we've been present in Ireland for quite a number of years and we're really one of the dominant players in Ireland. We have a four gigawatt pipeline of different technologies and we've been the most successful player in the Irish government's onshore renewables auctions over the past few years. So you know, Ireland really is a core market for us and we've been developing our offshore wind presence in Ireland over the past four to five years and we've developed quite an attractive portfolio there. What we felt we needed was a really strong industrial partner in offshore wind who had the experience and capabilities to work alongside us and help us to really develop those projects and drive them forward. So we've been delighted to bring in Copenhagen infrastructure partners who have you know a massive global presence in offshore wind and they're going to work alongside us in a joint venture organisation to help us mature those projects. In terms of the projects themselves, we have four projects currently with a combined capacity of up to 2.2 gigawatts. And we're really going to take them forward over the coming years. The flagship project there is the project we call NISA, which is the North Irish Sea Array. We're planning to take that project into the upcoming government auction for an offshore wind support mechanism this summer. And then we'll take it through the planning process and we hope to take it to an investment decision in late 2024.
0: Am I correct in understanding, David, that your, your activities around Ireland are very much also linked to the progress you want to make in, in Northern Europe? For example, in the North Sea, you obviously have, uh, have your eyes fixed on that area as well. So it's a hot piece of real estate. Uh, what are your plans mm. for, for development in the North Sea?
1: I think you're absolutely right. In a way, you could describe sort of northern Europe and the North Sea as the cradle of offshore wind in many ways. You know, it's now a global industry, but it really started in the wider North Sea area. And it's an attractive area for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, and most importantly, it has the fundamentals. You know, it has shallow water. It has excellent wind speed. And it has a lot of capabilities and competences within the nations that are in that area, particularly with the oil and gas heritage that we have. Secondly, it's very strong in terms of having access to the supply chain who can actually help us to deliver the project. You know, particularly you would look at Denmark with Vestas and Siemens, but also a lot of the foundation, vessel, logistics, et cetera, et cetera. Thirdly, I think it's really, you know, we have to give credit to the various European governments has very much been driven as well by their foresightedness on having strong targets. And with those targets, offshore wind has been a clear technology that's helped them to meet those. And then lastly, I think, you know, what we're going to see more and more for Northern Europe being quite relevant is the interconnectedness that you can get, the ability that offshore wind has to help couple those markets together and help the different countries deal with the sort of system integration challenge of having large volumes of renewables. So for us, obviously, then Northern Europe becomes extremely attractive, both in terms of our Irish activities, but also being a Norwegian state owned company, we're very interested and very passionate about the upcoming Norwegian offshore wind activities as well. So the two of those together make Northern Europe the obvious place for us to focus.
0: You also mentioned uh, specifically Denmark. David, we saw in the news recently that there was talk about the uh, Danish Energy Agency tweaking the policy for, for offshore wind. And it looks like they've tweaked the open-door Uh, offshore wind development procedure more specifically and I think it's causing some uncertainty perhaps in the investment landscape and perhaps uncertainty around what will happen to the 20 gigawatts of offshore wind currently under development and it brings to mind that the policy frameworks can really help or hinder the development of offshore wind. Would you care to comment on this for us?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I can't comment too specifically on the Danish situation, but I do think it illustrates that governments have a dilemma here. Offshore wind is clearly a crucial building block or lever that they can pull in delivering on their sort of net zero and security supply issues. But what they also want to do is make sure that they're capturing the local benefits for their society from delivering these large infrastructure projects. And you can see that They wrestle with those dilemmas in the various processes that governments are laying out to allocate development rights and lease options, which we've seen around the world have been highly lucrative in some cases. So I think, although not being close to the Danish issue, I suspect it's again the government trying to struggle and wrestle with those different challenges, which I have a lot of sympathy with. I think our core message as StatCraft and being who we are is that we simply can't take the foot off the pedal in terms of the pace that we need to deploy large volumes of green electrons. We all need to be laser focused on trying to deploy as much as we can as quickly as possible. And I don't envy them the challenge of trying to balance those different competing agendas.
0: Speaking of keeping the foot on the pedal... If I can ask you to comment on the European Green Deal industrial plan, obviously it's, it's come in light of uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was the, the US basically putting themselves at the forefront of the global green revolution. How do you think that could potentially aid the development of offshore wind? Do you think it will have an impact?
1: I think there are areas there that are quite interesting to see how they play out. I don't think we quite know how that will play out and then how individual states in the EU will implement them. But what I certainly picked up on was a little bit of a chink of or maybe a change of approach on some of the competition law and supply chain elements. And I think, as I mentioned, this is something that countries have struggled with, how to make sure that the benefits... Of, or at least a proportion of the benefits of these large projects, which are to a certain degree underpinned by the society in that country, are flowing to that country. And that could be in terms of job creation, supply chain, local content, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the EU has been very clear on making sure that, you know, it's an open playing field and competitive landscape for all. But I think you may see countries starting to be a bit more creative in how they can make sure that the local benefits are accruing to the society that sort of funding or paying for the infrastructure.
0: If I can circle back to you know we were talking about policy and, and some of the key threats that could potentially hinder offshore wind what in your view are some of the key threats that we should be addressing urgently at this time?
1: Sure, absolutely. I've got a long list in front of me, but maybe I'll just try and pick out some of the highlights. I mean, I think firstly, and as a developer, of course, I would always say this, but one of the challenges we definitely see with offshore wind is the challenge of speed of planning and speed of grid connection. And planning is a difficult one because it's very easy to say that the decision should be quicker and that planning should be more streamlined and faster. But we also live in a democracy and it's very important that all of the relevant stakeholders feel heard and feel listened to in the development of infrastructure. So, you know, I think there are ways to try and speed up processes, but I think it's also beholden on developers such as ourselves to make sure that we really are engaging with communities and bringing them with us on that. I don't think it can just be a sort of imposed decision at all. Secondly, I think, One of the things that you've seen, and and I mentioned the sort of auction processes that governments have run, on the face of it, those have been hugely successful. If you look at sort of the UK CFD regime for offshore wind, that's really driven down the price of that electricity and that energy to levels which have been really, really competitive with all forms of generation. And that's been hugely useful in making the needs case for offshore wind and winning offshore winds the right to be delivered at scale. But we're now reaching the stage, I think, where those auction processes are so efficient at driving out cost that the supply chain is really starting to creak and to struggle. The supply chain is being pushed extremely hard in terms of driving down their costs to the level where we're starting to see that they simply may not be profitable. And then when we're also asking for additionality in terms of local content, new factories, building lots of job creation opportunities, I think, frankly, we may be simply asking too much of the supply chain. So I think the countries, as they mature, there needs to be a sort of a grown up conversation about whether it is all about driving the cost as low as possible or is it about building a sustainable and vibrant industry for the long term? So I think that's something that we will struggle with. And then I think the third element for offshore wind is as we deliver these huge volumes of offshore wind and every country in Europe with any coastline is constantly adding 10 gigawatts to their target of offshore wind, which is fantastic. But we reach a challenge in terms of system integration. How can you integrate these huge volumes of offshore wind into the system and manage to do that in the lowest cost or most cost effective way. So I think you will see offshore wind industry having to get more creative over time about what is its route to market. You know, is it purely by plugging into the grid and providing green electrons, or is it through hydrogen or other different ways we can get that power to market? And I think in the 2030s and 2040s, that will become a real challenge, I think.
0: So clearly some exciting times ahead uh, as we try to overcome these challenges and uh, potential bottlenecks. But what makes it exciting for you in your new role? What are you focused on achieving, perhaps should I say, in the next year? Uh, What is keeping you motivated?
1: Absolutely. So I think for me, really, there's a few things there. One is offshore wind is a huge global opportunity but at the same time being a Norwegian company and seeing the Norwegian offshore wind agenda coming very strongly is hugely exciting for us because it means that we just innately get the support of many of our stakeholders to really push hard on offshore wind and we're very excited about the longer term Norwegian opportunity there I mean, obviously, we'd like it to be going a little bit faster and wouldn't everyone in every market. But there's reasons why Norway is taking some time to get some of those key policy building blocks in place. But that's hugely exciting for me. And really, that helps me to build the momentum and excitement within the company about offshore wind, because you have that big Norwegian agenda. But I must say also, you know, Having brought in Copenhagen infrastructure partners into our Irish portfolio, it's going to be really exciting to try and deliver those initial projects, learn, build our capabilities. And then we'll be in a good position to transfer that knowledge and that learning into our other markets as we expand over time. And then just again, almost harking back to the first question you asked me, what I love about offshore wind is that it has the ability to solve the energy trilemma that we've probably been talking about for decades, but has been brought into sharp focus by, you know, the terrible situation caused by the Ukraine war. But offshore wind really can provide decarbonisation, it's affordable and it's domestic security of supply. So it really ticks those three classical trilemma issues and that's been proven more and more. So I think the sort of the acceptance for offshore wind as being part of the fundamental mix of what we need to do. I think that argument is gone now. I think that that argument is won.
0: Well said. David, if I can pivot the conversation slightly towards some of the new technology that's becoming available specifically floating offshore wind. It's a tremendously exciting space to be working in. There's a lot of projects coming to the fore. Can you talk a little bit more about about what's happening in floating offshore wind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, floating offshore wind is really the sort of the next big thing in offshore wind. And it's understandable because as we have these sort of many gigawatts of capacity that countries want to bring on, ultimately we start to run out of those shallower water locations and you therefore move into deeper water and you have to move to different solutions. But I think floating offshore wind actually offers an opportunity that goes beyond that just sort of incremental going into deeper waters once you start going out into those much larger wider open spaces offshore which don't have the same sort of constraints in terms of other marine users you really can start to think differently you can start to think at huge scale and you can really start to industrialize so i think that's why it is quite so exciting for everyone i think that the converse of that is that The scale of ambition in floating offshore wind versus the reality of what we're able to do now is absolutely enormous. The gap between the volume that actually is in operation versus the huge pipeline of opportunities is so enormous that, again, it comes back to the supply chain. And can we ramp up the volume of supply chain we need to build all of these structures that are going to be sat out offshore So that's a really exciting but also, I think, very challenging thing for the industry to face. But for me, it's that opportunity of doing offshore wind at a really large industrial scale and really starting to be creative and think outside of the box on how we use that renewable energy is going to be really exciting.
0: That is exciting. But am I correct in understanding that as we sort of increase the, the industrial scale of, of wind production. Would you then have greater challenges with system integration, which you, you mentioned earlier? I mean, what kind of infrastructure do we, we need in order to make this truly beneficial to the grid?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, that will be the challenge we get. I mean, a lot of the societal impacts that are the most difficult to deal with in terms of offshore wind is not actually driven by the offshore wind farms themselves. It's often driven by the need to reinforce the grid infrastructure in coastal areas in order to facilitate the power coming onto shore. And, you know, you can certainly see that, for instance, in East Anglia, which is, you know, is called by protesters the chaos coast. Not because of the offshore wind itself, but because of obviously the nuclear that is there, but also the overhead lines, the substations, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, offshore wind being built at this large volume is going to start to hit that challenge of how does it get its product to market? And it's dependent on the building of very large overhead lines and reinforcements, et cetera. I think two really interesting things are starting to develop that can help to deal with that problem. One is we're seeing... evolution of hybrid projects. And when we talk about hybrid projects in offshore wind, what we mean is an offshore wind farm that could be then coupled to two different geographical markets. So for instance, between Norway and the UK or something like that. And then you can actually start to leverage the different demands of those two different markets to reduce the infrastructure you need at both ends and also help both markets manage their system integration. So you know, I think we can see those hybrid projects coming. Ultimately, that may result in what's been talked about as sort of an offshore supergrid in the fullness of time. But I think actually, you know, it's more likely to be those dedicated pieces of infrastructure that couple two markets that can help to deal with the issues at both ends. So we're very interested and very focused in those sorts of big projects that can really help to manage those system integration challenges. And then I think secondly, for me, The big thing you can expect to see coming as the cost of energy of floating offshore wind comes down, not just floating, but particularly floating and electrolyzers come down, is the coupling of offshore wind with the hydrogen agenda. I think the hydrogen, the green hydrogen agenda is very exciting but it simply needs enormous amounts of green electricity to work. And the only thing that can provide such enormous amounts is offshore wind. So I think there's a match made in heaven there if we can get it right, but it's also going to be dependent on getting the cost of energy down to levels that make sense.
0: Do you think it could take some time before we start seeing that beautiful pairing of offshore wind and hydrogen?
1: I mean, the cost effectiveness of fixed bottom offshore wind is extremely good. And those projects, you know, are being delivered at sort of grid parity. Or even now you're seeing people bid, you know, prices below the price of the grid. So that's already there. But of course, the question is, can you build enough of it to deliver the huge volumes we need for hydrogen? So that's what takes you into floating offshore wind. And I guess my view is that the next 10 years are going to be challenging in terms of asking the supply chain to, you know, drive down the cost to the sort of lower levels we're used to, while also massively ramping up to deliver the volume we want. So I think it's going to be a challenging 10 years, but I can easily see that, you know, once we reach the 2030s and the 2040s, and the supply chain has matured, then we're really going to have the opportunity to build out large volumes um, at the scale that we need to provide all these green electrons for hydrogen and ammonia and all these other things. But we've got to remember that. In many ways, that's the holy grail, because if we can, what we call in StatCraft sector coupling, if you can couple together different sectors of the energy industry and you can use your very cheap ways of generating green electricity to help you decarbonize the transport and the heating and all those other sectors, then that's when we really start to drive towards net zero.
0: David, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting your insights on the offshore wind market is there anything further you would like to add before we conclude any insights or or concluding remarks
1: one thing I haven't talked about, which it would be good to just mention, is the sustainability agenda. And, and I just want to mention that because sometimes I think the renewable industry has been a little bit complacent that because we're decarbonizing and we're doing good from that side, we don't need to focus quite so much on the sustainability agenda. But I think it's really beholden and really important for the offshore wind industry that we fully embrace that sustainability agenda and think about The total footprint of the impacts of our activities and relentlessly look to try and minimize those impacts all over the place. So, I'm very keen for StatCraft and many other players to really take that sustainability challenge on and really see what good we can do out of offshore wind in addition to producing green electrons. But apart from that, no, it's been great to chat through. There's huge amounts going on. It's a really dynamic and interesting sector. And as I said at the start, you know, it's When you work in something where you really believe in the purpose of what you're doing, it really helps to get you through the tough days and get you through the bumps along the road.
0: We'd wish you all the best for your new role at Startcraft and for the various projects that you're involved in. Hopefully we can check in again soon with an update.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, David. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast. Brought to you by Enlet and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.